welcome to the Dialogue Book Report. My name is Andrew Hall. I'm the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Terrell Gibbons, who will be talking about his newest book, Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. There will be a lot to say about Eugene England. For one, he was the co-founding editor of Dialogue in 1966, so we can say that he is the forefather of this very podcast. Uh, but before I introduce Dr. Gibbons, I also want to welcome my new co-host, Christina Rossetti, who is the new nonfiction book review editor at Dialogue. Christina holds a PhD in religious studies. Her research focuses on the history and lived experience of Mormon fundamentalists in the Intermountain West. Christina, welcome. Hi, I'm so excited to get to be here. I'm excited to have a co-host. Terrell L. Givens was born in upstate New York and received his degrees at Cornell and the University of North Carolina. He was for years a professor of literature and religion and a professor of English at the University of Richmond. Currently, he is a Neil A. Maxwell Senior Fellow at Brigham Young University. He has published in Literary Theory, British and European Romanticism, Mormon Studies, and Intellectual History. Dr. Givens has authored or edited 21 books, several of them with his wife, Fiona. He currently makes his home with his wife in Midway, Utah. Daryl, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Gene England passed away in 2001, so 20 years after his death. Why is the life and thought of Gene important enough to write a book? And there's two parts to this question. Why is he important to Latter-day Saints today? And why was he important enough to you? Well, he is important, I think, for a number of reasons. One is his legacy is tremendously important in terms of, I mean, in some ways he could be considered the father, certainly a father, but in some ways the father of Mormon studies. He, he launched that program at uh, UVU, it used to be UVSC. Of course, as one of the co-founders of Dialogue, arguably the most influential, important uh, journal in Mormon studies. He was in many ways a, uh, a nexus of all kinds of important historical and cultural forces that were building in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, in many ways, I think his life is an important kind of uh, parable uh, about the conflict between uh, intellectual integrity and uh, devotion to an institutional church. And he was prescient in an incredible number of ways. The kinds of tensions that he saw taking shape in the church the ways in which he tried to resolve them faithfully that were not well appreciated in his own time, but he certainly correctly anticipated the looming collisions brought about by developments in the internet age, in the age of open access to the LDS archives. So he's as relevant today as he ever was. I was asked by his widow to do his biography shortly after he died. Uh, I resisted her entreaties, which is not easy if you know Charlotte, but I felt that he needed a contemporary and a peer to more accurately kind of get into his mind and life. But that didn't happen. And so when she approached me again three or four years ago, I consented and I'm glad I did. Weird too. I mean, like you said, Jean England was really a forefather, like a founding figure of Mormon studies in so many ways. Um, and I just wanted to know, if I'd just hear from you on how your own work, how your role in Mormon studies has been influenced by his legacy. Well, I, it has been. I, I'd like to think, I'd like to think in some ways that I've tried to emulate much of what he stood for, which was the belief that as a faithful Latter-day Saint, one could engage one's history and culture and theology honestly, and that one could ask any question and not be afraid of where it was going to lead one, that if the, the history and the claims and the foundations of the church as, a, as an institution aren't resilient enough to withstand scrutiny, then they don't deserve our loyalty or adherence. 
So I think he provided a model of disciple scholarship that I think is important for those who have a faith commitment and also want to do work in the area of LDS studies. Uh, yeah, I like what you say about, well, I mean, his faith commitment was so important. I, I was able to meet him at BYU. And as so many people have said, his scholarship, his positions, his, his advocacy of human rights was so important, but so wrapped up in that was his faith. You know, he saw this not just as a, you know, an intellectual or even certainly not just a secular thing, but this was a religious mission for him to, you know, reach out to people and to be a disciple of Christ. Yeah, it really was. And I don't know that anybody as, has worked as hard as Gene England did to build community and to create a kind of inclusiveness. I think one of the overlooked parts of, of his style was to emphasize not just that we have to make room for doubters and skeptics or even non-believers within, within the community, but that we also have to do honor to those who claim certainty and spiritual knowledge about their faith and testimony. So it's not that he was you know, trying to rewrite Mormon studies in a secularist way. He was really trying to accommodate all different perspectives and viewpoints and faith orientations. I think his model in those ways uh, has never been more desperately needed than it is at the present moment, both in the church and in our American culture. And he said he wanted dialogue, right? Literal dialogue with people with different ideas. He named the journal that he poured so much of his life into dialogue. How do you yeah. think we're doing now? Are we seeing dialogue between people in the church? Um, <laughs> I'm not seeing very much of it. You know, he, I think he went into the, the project with a certain degree of naivete, which in some ways is appealing. I mean, he was an idealist and he saw the best in human nature. I thought, and I think I, I mentioned this episode in the book, but I thought one of the most poignant and, and sad moments of his life was when Sunstone launched their first issue and he wrote a letter to the editor for their inaugural issue. And effectively what he said was, you are beginning with the same vision that I had and my vision hasn't turned out as well as I thought it would. We have a tendency in the Latter-day Saint past uh, within church culture to immediately polarize, you know, I mean, how many organizations and journals and individuals have begun with this aspiration to stake out a middle ground and immediately the presses, the journals, the, the, the organizations tend to move in the direction of a kind of rigid orthodoxy and inflexibility on the one hand, or kind of dissenting from the margins critics on the other. And he was convinced that we can do better than that. But we're still fighting those same kinds of tensions and proclivities today. I mean, look, at you've got Desnat on the one hand and, and ang angry progressives on the other. We're fighting from the same kind of far extremes of the cultural divide. I have a, I have a question along those lines, which I'm sure you were thinking about maybe. I don't know. Um, but you mentioned exactly that in the biography, that there are these kind of polarized ways of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we are seeing that exactly like you said, play out um, right now. And in the midst of that, uh, radical orthodoxy came out as what you're saying yeah. of staking some kind of middle ground. Um, and I'm just curious how much of the time you spent with Eugene England's writings influenced that perspective, if at all. Yeah, well, I think radical orthodoxy ended up achieving in many ways the opposite of its intent, as it was explained to me by one of the one of the originators who happens to be a son, 
Uh, and I believe, knowing him as well as I do, that his sincere desire was to create this space where people could affirm certain essentials and yet be open to flexibility, to reinterpretation, to movement and to development. And it seemed like an innocent uh, and pure-hearted enough enterprise to me. And immediately, of course, people read into it all kinds of subtle messages and covert agendas and the fact that some of the authors had been prominent in other kinds of conservative advocacy. So immediately it became a kind of flashpoint for uh, intensified controversy and, and hurt feelings. So, you know, I don't know what Gene England's feelings would have been about the document itself, but I think he certainly would have applauded the attempt. Uh, I think the name itself, Radical Orthodoxy, parallels in many ways Gene England's own, right, persona. Uh, he was clearly, uh, I, don't, I don't want to use a progressive because that's too politically loaded right now, but he certainly was an expansive, creative, thoughtful, developmental, right, kind of, of Latter-day Saint, but he was absolutely inflexibly committed to what he saw as the foundational truth claims of the church. Um, so I think radical orthodoxy is yet another example of the failure of our culture to accommodate good faith attempts at a middle ground and dialogue. We're just not very good at it yet. The biography highlights Jean's apparent missteps in her interactions with church and university authorities. And it's just amazing to me how much attention that this institute teacher in Palo Alto and then this uh, BYU English professor, how many letters he had back and forth to general authorities and how many meetings he had. I think the Packer ones surprised me the most, how much he, he constantly went back to Elder Packer. And yeah. even yeah. though he was getting criticized by him, he'd come back to him with his ideas and, you know, here's this thing for Mormon literature I want to do. And why do you think he did that? Why was, why was the approval of the general authorities so important to him? And why were the general authorities so willing to engage with him? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And I, I'm really reluctant to engage in psychobiography. So I try to keep my, uh, interpretations to a minimum, but it is clear, right, that his father had very high expectations of his son. His father was a temple president and, you know, mission president and contributed to the church and first name basis with the brethren. And it's clear that he had uh, hopes that his son would become a general authority. And I think that expectation weighed heavily in Gene's life, but he felt called to be uh, a literary and social and cultural critic and scholar. And that's not usually a, a pathway to leadership in the church. And so he, he, I think he, he felt he needed and wanted affirmation that his, the path he chose was the right one for him and for the church. He had a practice almost automatically when somebody was called to the leadership of the church, he would write to that individual, uh, whether it was an apostle or an assistant to the quorum. And he usually would accompany his letter with some of his poetry or a book of his essays. I think part of it was, yes, he wanted, you know, that sense of affirmation uh, and love. But I think also he felt he had a genuine contribution to make. The, the brethren don't tend to be always tuned in to what's happening academically. And so I think he felt that it was a, a legitimate gesture on his part to expose some of the brethren to what he thought was important, a representative intellectual work that was being done in the church. He kept records meticulously. There are over 200 boxes of his papers uh, in the University of Utah archives. Uh, so that was quite a, a trove for me to have, but to have to work through. So every general authority of his era has his own file, correspondence with Gene England. Uh, I know that there was one very poignant moment where he was frustrated in some of his interactions with the brethren in the church administration building, and he went home and 
this spilled over in his conversation with Charlotte. And Charlotte said, why is it so important for you to, to, to be affirmed by the brethren? And Gene wrote in his journal that night, that's a very good question. So he recognized that this proclivity at times was excessive and not always healthy. I'm curious, along those lines, um, throughout the biography, you talk about a issue that Gene talked a lot about, about the priesthood ban. And that comes up time and again in dialogue. It still does. It still comes up in dialogue in terms, like the historical community is still talking about it. And it seemed, it's something that really seemed to occupy a lot of Gene's intellectual and also personal thought. Um, and so I'm curious what, I mean, you mentioned you're not here to psychoanalyze Eugene England, um, but what do you think he would be doing today? Well, I certainly think he'd be at the forefront of whatever endeavors are taking place already in terms of outreach and trying to acknowledge the, the problems with the racist past of the, the church and of America. Um, what's kind of ironic is that, right, he wrote two essays, both of which got him into a certain amount of hot water on the priesthood ban, and both of them would be considered virtually reactionary today. Because, right, he actually says it did come from God. It was inspired, but it was a consequence of Latter-day Saint racism, right? So I, I think his commitment to that was absolutely genuine. There's no question that his years at Palo Alto, you know, he entered into that period as a staunch conservative. And then with what he saw as the tremendous betrayals of the Vietnam War, he lost his confidence in institutions and American authority. And I think that he was one of those kind of, you know, children of the 60s who saw racism and classism and militarism as the great evils of the day. And I think one of the sad things about his life is that he found so little solidarity, either with fellow Latter-day Saints or the leadership. He, and he was kind of in, incomprehending. It's like racism and militarism and classism are so patently at odds with the, the, the gospel, not just the social gospel, but any reading of the gospel, you know, in the Book of Mormon or the scriptures. And he was virtually a, a lone voice out there in the wilderness and could never quite understand that. You talk a lot about the apparent missteps and interactions with church and university authorities. You frequently mention his naivete and tone deafness. How much do you think they, those matter? That is, do you think, could he have publicly written and said what he did without consequence if he had been a more effective diplomat? Or did the broader cultural tensions just set him up to get in trouble sooner or later? I, I think there's a degree of truth in both of those explanations. You know, it, it wasn't just naivete. At times, he was willfully oblivious. I mean, there are times when he either had a very, very faulty memory or just a kind of selective memory because he was explicitly told by both, well, by two of the senior apostles that his teachings on atonement were contrary to church doctrine. And yet when those eventually became a pretext for his dismissal from BYU, he professed total astonishment. Why? I, you know, I, I circulated these and there wasn't any problem. Yeah, there was. Two apostles wrote him explicitly and said, this is, this is contrary to, ch to church teachings. And those kinds of things happened a couple of times where Elder Packer would make it just as clear as he could possibly make it. That, look, dialogue isn't appreciated by the leadership, and as long as you're associated with it, you're not going to get a job at BYU. And then he comes back two years later, why didn't I get my job at BYU? <laughs> so it wasn't just naivete. On the other hand, there was a certain reaction that was taking place in the 1970s and 80s, right, to intellectualism in the church that was very pronounced and very explicit. And it's doubtful that even with greater political sensibility, he would have been much more uh, effective in making his voice heard. 
Yeah, in, in, uh, and this is a whole other direction we could take the, the, the conversation, but you know, the, the subtitle of the book is Gene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism, but I actually could have rephrased, that was the press's subtitle, but it, it could just as accurately be called the Crisis of Mormon Modernism. And that's part of why I, I wrote the book the way I did, is that I think that the Latter-day Saints are in this very unique historical position. It's, it's as if we thought we weathered the storms of modernism, that created the crises in both the Catholic and the Protestant wings of the church, uh, early 20th century. By the time we're into the 1960s and 70s, modernism is a memory of the past. But the historical consciousness that precipitated the crisis in Catholic and Protestant traditions was delayed for 50 years because of a unique set of Latter-day Saint circumstances, our cultural and intellectual isolation, the, the lack of a, of a professional clergy, a kind of authoritarian strain, all of these, these things precipitated this delay. And so I think one way to read Gene England's life is kind of through the prism of any of the great figures who were caught up in the modernist controversies of Catholicism and Protestantism, but 65 years earlier. It strikes me that there's very little of his writing that if it were published today would strike a dissonant chord with almost anybody leadership included. I mean, none of his positions would be judged radical or threatening to church orthodoxy today that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, I'm interested along those lines. We talked about dialogue in terms of bringing different Mormon perspectives together in conversation, but you constantly reference um, Catholicism and Protestantism. You mentioned how uh, Mormonism is hyper-Protestant in terms of its operating, but also hyper-Catholic in terms of its structure. Eugene England went to the Vatican. He watched St. Pope John Paul II, the attempted assassination. Um, and so I'm wondering what we can learn from, what you think we can learn from Eugene England in terms of a broader dialogue between different Christian groups, between Mormons and Catholics and Protestants. And where would he, what, yeah. what would he have done with that? Well, that's, that's a good question. You know, I have a, I have a kind of a personal anecdote, which has caused me to re-evaluate my feelings about the status of Mormon studies, as Gene England and others have conceived it and articulated it, I, I submitted a proposal to a premier press uh, to write a, a history of Christianity from a Latter-day Saint perspective. And the senior editor was highly interested. She loved the proposal. She said, this looks terrific. Put it together and let's get this ball rolling. As I thought about it, I realized if, if I'm telling the story of Christian history from an LDS perspective, then you've immediately thrown up all kinds of red flags, not just red flags, but you painted a target on your back, right? And you've already kind of disqualified a universal legitimacy to your vision. And so I rewrote the proposal and I sent it back and I said, uh, no, I wanna reframe this as a history of Christianity that is revisionist and that just takes into consideration a kind of wealth of new perspectives and developments over the last 50 years. She immediately wrote back and said, oh, well, that's a completely different matter. I'm not sure, you know, we're not, you know, not really, not really. And it occurred to me at that moment, it's like effectively what has happened is that Mormon studies has been given its own little place in the sandbox. And publishers in this country have realized there's an audience because Mormons read and people interested in Mormonism read. So we could make a lot of money if we have a, a Mormon studies line. But I, I think it's, it's the same dilemma that was faced by women in, in you know, second wave feminism where feminist studies 
women's studies programs are springing up everywhere. Uh, and I'll never forget, uh, no, it wasn't Toni Morrison, who was it? I think it was a poet laureate who, who, who said, um, I don't want to be classified as a black woman author. Nobody, nobody classifies Shakespeare as a white male author. I'm an author. And so there's the problem, right, of ghettoization, which is always inherent in any kind of special demarcation. And so I think there's a phase that Mormon studies had to go through, like black studies did and women's studies did, where you have to kind of, you don't have a place in the canon, and so you have to demand a place in the sandbox. But then it gets to the point where it's like, that can't be enough anymore. We have to now be normalized in terms of our status and our voice. And I'm wondering if we have arrived at that moment in Mormon studies where we have to stop claiming a kind of special status and so I think Jean England was important for that phase of the history of LDS scholarship. But I'm wondering if he too, he was so universal in his outlook and in his outreach that I think he would have said, okay, we're becoming a little bit too isolated and self-enclosed. Let's start breaking down some of these walls and have more engagement with the larger world, religiously and academically. Now, you're reviewing the way that the 20th century church was not a welcoming place for voices of conscience outside of the church hi hierarchy. Even humanitarians and people like Faith, like Lowell Binion and Eugene England, who you know, were at BYU, but then were forced to leave. Now here you are, a, a leading uh, public intellectual in the church. You have a position at the Maxwell Institute. How do you see yourself like or unlike Gene? And, and how do you see what has changed since then? Uh, I'm not sure that as much has changed as I thought or had hoped. It strikes me that his book is more relevant to this moment in history than, than I had appreciated. I'm finding that we still aren't at a place culturally, I'm only going to speak culture, where we see the theological enterprise as an exciting and wonderful thing in and of itself. Isn't this great that we have this theological framework and within this space, we can propound ideas and explorations and implications. There are still so many people without even official title who consider themselves to be guardians of orthodoxy that uh, I think my lament is that as a culture, we, we have a tremendous difficulty recognizing that theology is not doctrine and doctrine is not theology. And that for somebody like myself, or I could name you know half a dozen others who, who are active in the field of theological studies within the context of Mormonism, uh, who aren't making authoritative claims, but too often it's thought that that's exactly what you're doing if you're trying to interpret Joseph Smith or, or recast the context for a different religious vocabulary. So yeah, I've had, I've had significant pushback and I thought we had moved beyond that we had learned the lessons that Jane England's life taught us, but my sense is that we still haven't. And how are you like or unlike Jean? Um, <laughs> I think I'm unlike him in that uh, I, I would like to hope that I think it's safer to work without soliciting official approval and commendation and to, to just do my work and let it stand on its own merits. I think I'm like Gene in that I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic about the capacity of the Latter-day Saint tradition to withstand strenuous and rigorous investigation and exploration. But I think I'm unlike him in that I, I think I'm a, a little more politically savvy <laughs> than, than he was. Although 
I have to say, I think political naivete is a, is a virtue and not a vice, that's for sure. Uh, one of the things that I really liked about the bio was kind of seeing how you know BYU studies and dialogue and Sunstone and all of these existed at the same time and the political way that they functioned together. Um, and it really kind of solidified that the way that these journals and symposia and everything interact together today is really just a heightened version of how it was when Eugene England was um, alive and running dialogue. And I, in terms of kind of a hope for the future of Mormon studies and also for what Eugene England would have thought is happening now, do you think there's hope for all of these, for BYU and the Maxwell Institute and Sunstone and dialogue to ever have dialogue? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm hopeful. I mean, the fact that, that these kinds of organizations continue to proliferate, right? I mean, we actually have a Society for Mormon Theology and Philosophy, right? That in and of itself, I think, is a significant development. It's many years in progress now. We have new publishing lines opening up, right? But Duquesne and Illinois has come back into the game. So there's, if, if, if anything, an expanding market. I'm not sure what we're to make of the signs in the area of, of actual programs of Mormon studies, right? I mean, for a while, there was this kind of euphoria. It's kind of the euphoria we had back, when was it? Help me here. Was it 1990s when Harold Bloom's book on the American religion came out? And and Mormons were so thrilled. A man of Harold Bloom's stature is paying attention to us, right? And, and I think there was the same kind of euphoria, right? Mormon studies programs at Claremont and where else? Um, Wyoming is talking about it. University of Utah kind of has done one. And Utah State, and there's one over in Durham, England. And, but actually, you know, is that really a sign of anything significant that's happened in the academy? I mean, we, we, you know, we don't have anybody going into the field that I know of and successfully landing positions as professors of Mormon studies. And do we want that to happen? So I, I'm, I'm happy to see that there's, a, you know, a healthy ferment that is still there. I don't think it's diminished much since the late 1960s when that first flowering of, you know, the Camelot years took place. So yeah, it's, I think it's still a good, a good time to be a scholar interested in Latter-day Saint things. Do you think there's ever going to be a time where the tension between BYU studies, dialogue, et cetera, disappears? I mean, it just seems like the trend from the beginning was that these are I was, I don't know, I guess I wasn't surprised, but I was surprised that they, that this is like a longer standing thing than just me walking into Mormon studies and learning about yeah. so-and-so can't publish in dialogue, so-and-so can't go to Sunstone. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, I, I just, I can't imagine Eugene England would have loved that because he didn't, you know, in life. And is there a hope for that going away? Yeah, um, you know, that's a good question, Christina. And I don't know. I don't know. Uh, we still have our own kind of cancel culture. You know, I just I just had a long conversation with, with Randall Paul. Uh, I don't know if you know him and his work, Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. And I love his approach to dialogue, which is we, we need to, to champion contestation. So he says that's not the same as contention. And I think this is such a crucial distinction. Right? We could all learn from, from his distinction here that I think we need contestation, right? I want to hear people at, at FAIR tell me why they think my interpretations are a threat to church doctrines and 
I want to hear people from the left telling me why they think I'm reinventing, you know, but I want to hear it in a respectful way that we can actually have a conversation about it. But I think orthodoxy is still being weaponized in a way that is, is detrimental to that. So, I mean, there's no question we've made some progress, but there are still more barriers uh, than I'd like to like to see. I just, I just think it'd be wonderful to inhabit a world, and in some, in some ways, please, I'm qualifying this, is like the Catholic world, where there's just this, this right variety of profound theological engagement with the tradition, and the Pope doesn't feel threatened. Nobody's right. Well, maybe, maybe I'm misreading. I'm not a Catholic insider. <laughs> But I get the sense that there's a lot more kind of tolerance for and respect for healthy variety of engagements with the tradition. And I think, you know, we'd all be a lot better off if, as Elder Holland has said in some of his talks, we could just take a deep breath, just relax, and just have, have a fun conversation about more of this stuff. Gene was interested in such a wide variety of things. I mean, he was there in the, in the history department and he was he loved literature and so many things that he wanted to do have developed into this mormon studies field which he, as we said has, has grown but literature has yet to find a place in the larger field that england envisioned what role do you see mormon literature and literary studies playing in this larger mormon studies world yeah you know i'm i'm not sure i've ever been fully on board with this project of we need our own shakespeare's and we need our own beethoven's right god gave the world a shakespeare He's ours as much as he's anyone's. So I, I guess I would like to see more unabashed representation of a Latter-day Saint voice, but not if it's already going to be denominated Mormon literature. Uh, one of my favorite expressions that ever spoken by Gene England was anti-provincial provincialism. And I, I think he's dead on. I think he's dead on. My most cost, this is again, you know, forgive a personal anecdote, but my most caustic reviewers have always been from Latter-day Saints, not the New York Times or the Atlantic or, you know, it's been fellow Latter-day Saints. Because any profession that espouses affection for the tradition is immediately condemned as embarrassing, right? We've got to take that guy down. We got, to, we got to demonstrate to the world that we can be as cynical and secular as the best of them, right? And I detest that kind of insecurity with one's own faith tradition. And I think, I think Gene England did as well. So I think, you know, what he would say is, let's get out there, but we don't have to do it by mimicking the voices and the modes that are out there. So I guess I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too. I want to, you know, I want to cheer on Orson Whitney. Yeah, we need to have an LDS literature, but we need to do it by competing on an even playing field and not asking for a special demarcation. And you pointed out several of the great uh, Eugene England essays, but which, which essay do you think listeners should go read right away? Go read it, Easter Sunday. Um, did I get the title of that one? It's, 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 That's one. Right. it's just, in some ways, it's his most versatile because it's, it's, it's got this really great, poignant, vulnerable autobiographical dimension but it's framed in the context of this really expansive vision of what the atonement can mean in terms of a theology of grace that is really profound and moving. And I think it's his most uh, literarily elegant. Uh, it's just a powerful, beautiful essay. My favorite. 
I'm interested in what your favorite theological contribution of Eugene England. I mean, I, I think I assumed it would be the idea of a God who weeps. Um, and so I want you to on a, like separately talk about that and why that yeah. was so influential to you. Well, I, I actually, I don't know that that is, although certainly my wife and I have, have written and, and tried to develop that even, even further. I think what I love most about Gene England's theology, a couple of things, generally speaking, I believe, uh, and you know, I've been critiqued for this, but I believe that uh, he recognized, as few of, of his contemporaries did or do to this day, the extent to which we are still Protestantized. And he recognized that. And he saw that in our zeal to be accepted as Christian, we were abandoning the distinctives of restoration soteriology and imbibing a vocabulary and expressing a vocabulary that betray Joseph Smith's uh, foundational ideas and doctrines. So I admire that about him. and I think he was correct. And the second thing I admire the most about him is his sense that, that discipleship requires risk. And not just of the kind that he personally embodied, but uh, in terms of the grand project of salvation as a risky venture, the vulnerability of God, the, the, the sense of potential loss that is there. The, uh, he, he loved to cite Brigham Young in a way that very few have as saying God's purpose for humanity is to make them as independent in their sphere as God is in his. So he thought we sometimes had this this kind of highly paternalistic conception of, of God and of the spirit that was detrimental, that we're always trying to be guided by the spirit. We always want to make sure we don't step outside, right? And he said, that's not what we're here for. We're here to risk and to venture forth. And so we had this vision of the gospel that I think was exciting and adventurous. And uh, I don't see that much around. Well, Gene and Charlotte were amazing models of the kind of hosp hospitality that the scriptures celebrate. Uh, how do you think lived hospitality affects Mormon intellectual life? How do I think hosp lived hospitality affects yeah. intellectual life? You know, that's a great question. I don't, you know, if this were a dissertation defense, I'd say, let me come back to that. <laughs> I don't know. You know, they, they, they were famous for the soirees they held or the on Thursday evenings at their place. And um, I mean, there's a crying need for that kind of thing, right? Where there is a space for, uh, you know, like the great soirees of, you know, 18th century Paris, right? Where people come together and there are all of these conduits for the transmission of ideas and, as well as talent. And so they modeled how to do that. Latter-day Saints have a, a, an earlier history and tradition of that, right? I mean, I think of Wilfred Woodruff and the Polysophical Society, right? There were all of these kind of book clubs, reading groups, right, that sprung up in, in early Utah. I see some of that happening, like the, the Miller's um, Foundation, is that what it's called? The Miller Eccles. Eccles. And you see these springing up all around the country, which I think is an incredibly exciting thing, where, where a group of Latter-day Saints get together and they say, we want to promote and, and fund intellectual culture, and so we're going to create this space where it can happen. So everybody knows that nobody does community as well as Latter-day Saints do, but it's not always intellectual community that is at the forefront of our endeavors. So it, it should be. That's why I grew up with my, my parents in, in Southern California, attended Miller Eccles and my, my parents are pretty conservative, but they loved these book group discussions and they, yeah. uh, you know, created their own. And so I grew up with, you know, people in the house talking about books. And so we tried to model that when we were in Pittsburgh. And Now, a few people 
No, the story that, you know, we, we all know about the, the ga first gathering to Zion, right, Jackson County, and the dedication of the temple which was on August 3rd, right, 1830. Few people know that on August 2nd, the day before that, another building was dedicated, and it was a log house that would be a schoolhouse. So I just think that's this, this really cool, right, thing that before the temple's foundation are even laid, no, there's education and intellectual culture. Are, are going to be foregrounded in this Zion community. What a great model. Let's say, and you probably have a chance to do this, an emerging scholar or writer uh, is reading this book and considering their own career, and they want to get involved in theology and, and other thorny issues. What would you advise them to sort through the kind of tensions that, that you see here in Gene's life? What, what, what would you suggest for them in their, in their course of dealing with live LDS issues? Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's a simple recipe. That's a pretty complex question that uh, some of us are still working out on our own terms. I'll just say a couple of things. You know, my, my great mentor and friend, Richard Bushman, and uh, I've gone to him in time to time and sought out his judgment. I did when I began this project. I said, you know, there are a lot of people who might be offended and I thought on both sides, right? Because everybody wants to see him. It's just a guy always poking his finger in the eye of the church or somebody who was just this inquisitorial victim. And uh, I just remember Richard said, you know, if you know in your heart, it's a book that needs to be written, then you just do it and you don't look over your shoulder. And so I think that was pretty good advice. But I guess the other thing I would ask is, is this, and I realize that, you know, the audience isn't all LDS, but I am. And so I'm going to speak uh, from my own LDS perspective. I, I always try to ask myself, Am I sure what wall my ladder is against? So what is it that I want to accomplish with my life of scholarship? Is it that I want a plaque on my wall? Or is it that I believe that doing genuine scholarship with a pure heart is a form of worship? And I do. And so I believe ultimately that it is positive to be faithful to my disciplinary standards of integrity and still do something that ultimately is going to be edifying and that is going to build faith, if not in the church, faith in human nature, faith in, in goodness. And I guess that's the advice I would give them. Great. Christina, do you want to, anything else you want to ask? Uh, I think I just want to know what your favorite story about Eugene England's life is. So there's this, there's this great transition he goes through, right? Where he's lived, I don't know how many years in Palo Alto, what was he there, seven, eight years, right? And he's just immersed in this right hyper, intellectual culture and all of his friends and associates are just right the cream of the crop of the american intelligentsia in the church as well as out he gets his first job back east at the, the lutheran college saying Olaf. and the way he tells it he's practically not even out of his station wagon and he's called as the branch president of this new branch and so he tells these lovely stories right about how he has to make a transition from theology as an abstract intellectual enterprise to religion as lived community. And this is transformative for him because he's working with real people, average people in all classes and backgrounds. And so he decides that, you know, every new bishop really needs to have somebody they can rely on to know what's going on in the ward, who are these people, who are the backgrounds. And so who, who, whoever would know the people of a ward better than the bishop's wife? And so he decides he's going to call the ex-bishops or stake, uh, branch president, I guess, the ex-branch president's wife as his executive secretary. And that's what he decides to do, right? And people around him say, you can't do that. 
she's she's a woman, right? What's Salt Lake going to say? And his reply is, her first name is Frances. Salt Lake will never figure it out. <laughs> so I love that about Gene because he just did what he knew was right. And he didn't worry so much about handbooks and parameters. That's great. All right. Well, Daryl, thank you very much. We really enjoyed this conversation. It's been good being with you both. And Christina, really great to see you again. Good to see you too. Happy to see you both and doing good work. Dialogue. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or, or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and helpfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.